We are continuing to look at the story of Esther from the Old Testament. Esther takes place in the Persian Empire in the early 5th century BC, 400, uh, 485 to 490 BC, somewhere around in there. Uh, King Xerxes is on the throne, but in this book he goes by his Persian name, Ahasuerus. I know you all practiced that this week, so you could follow along well. Um, Last week we saw that he was drunk, and he asked his wife, Queen Vashti, to come and hang out with his drinking buddies, and she refused, so he banished her, probably uh, uh, killed her as well. But then he hosted this challenge. He brought in all the young, eligible women in the capital. He had them audition for himself, and several years later he named Esther, a young, beautiful Jewish woman, the queen over the entire empire of Persia. Now, last week we saw that being Jewish wasn't that important to Esther. She didn't really care very much. She was okay with using the valuable things to Persians, beauty, power, uh, in order to gain um, herself security, to gain herself promotion. And the same was true for her cousin, Mordecai, who has raised her since she was orphaned. And this morning, what we're going to see is that the story somewhat zooms in to Mordecai. We see a little bit about who he is and see him act in some unique ways. Um, And one thing that we do see really important in this passage is how power, specifically the power of the crown, influences people. So as Angela reads the first part of this passage, I'll I'll read the second part in my sermon. Uh, I want to ask, I would like for you to ask yourself this question. If you knew someone in power, the CEO of your company, a king, someone like that, and they said, you can ask me for whatever you want, what would you ask for? And what would that reveal about your heart? Let's give ear to the reading of God's word. Today's text comes from Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through chapter 315. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as she had when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged at the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. 
God, this morning we come again to a passage that feels uh, very far from us, removed, distant uh, in time, um, in relation to our present situation and circumstance. Uh, So we ask that you would send your Spirit to help us understand how this story, what has happened in the past, and how you were working in the lives of these people impacts us, instructs us, what it communicates to us about who you are and how you love and care for your people. Help us to feel your presence and your love here this morning. We pray that you would be with us. I ask that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to talk this morning a little bit about perceived injustice. And so I think it's only appropriate to talk to you about the time, at one time, that I chose to become a freedom fighter. Um, I was in second grade. I was seven years old. Uh, And I was a good student. I was a good kid. I rarely got in trouble. But Lee Rinks got in trouble a lot. And he one day was talking to me. And my teacher saw us talking. And she called us out and she said, you guys are getting your name written on the board. Now, it's her policy. You got your name written on the board for your first offense. Then you got a check mark next to it at your second offense. And by the third one, it was an X. And if you had an X by your name on the board at the end of the day, you were sitting out of recess. I was furious at this injustice. My name had never been written on the board. It never should have been written on the board. And so I chose to take matters into my own hands, and I went up to her desk, and I explained myself, no, 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 I've done nothing wrong here. He was talking to me. I was not talking back. My name shouldn't be on the board. She said, it's, that's fine. I don't really care who is doing what. Your name's on the board. Just behave the rest of the day, and you can still have recess. But I felt so uh, just completely assaulted. My, my character was besmirched by having my name written on the board, and she wasn't listening to me, so I was going to do whatever I could to make sure that this wrong was righted. Later that day, we're walking in a line, you know, second graders in line, to the library when she says, oh, I forgot my book on my desk in the classroom. Immediately, my hand shot up. I, I will go back and get it for you. I can do that I, Stephen, the good student, will go back and do this for you. You see where I'm going with this, right? So I walk back. She lets me go for some reason back to class. I walk all the way back to the class. I open the door. I don't even turn on the light. I walk all the way up to her desk. I grab the book. I turn. I walk past the chalkboard. I grab the eraser, and I erase my name (laughs) off the board, put it back, and walk out. Um, Justice was served. Uh, unfortunately, when we got back to the class, she looked at the chalkboard and looked at me and said, Stephen, wasn't your name on the chalkboard? And like a second grader that I was, I folded. I was like, yeah, it was. I don't, I don't know what happened to it at all. Um, perceived injustice, right? We are all wronged at some point. Sometimes it's something insignificant, like having your name written on the board in second grade. But a lot of times, the way that we feel wronged is incredibly powerful, incredibly painful, right? Sometimes people do things to us that we don't think we deserve. Sometimes the things that we believe we deserve, we don't get. When we do good things, people ignore us. Our good deeds are not recognized. And what we see uh, most often in our lives is that we respond the way second grade Stephen responded. This is wrong, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to fix it. I'm the one that needs to right this wrong. And beneath that, there's a previously answered question. The question is, am I all alone? Is no one going to help me? 
we answer that question and think, it's up to me and me alone to right this wrong, right? Whenever we get into a situation where we feel oppressed, we feel like there has been injustice done to us, and we think to ourselves, it's up to me to right this wrong, we've already answered the question, yes, we are alone. Another way to ask that question is, where is God? Is God, even God, has abandoned me? Is he not willing to do anything for me? We've answered that no. We must do things ourselves. We must avenge our wrong. Or we must prevent ourselves from ever feeling like we've been wronged in this way again. In this passage this morning, though, God gives us hope and encouragement through the story of Mordecai and Haman that even though we can't perceive him, we may not see him or hear him working, he is at work. He has not abandoned us. He is present even in the midst of the greatest injustice. What we see in our passage is that even when others prosper or do us harm, we should look for God's promises. When others prosper or do us harm, we should look for God's promises. That's where we're going to find him. That's what we see in the passage. That's where we're going this morning. Let's start by looking at when others prosper. I hope you're catching the emphasis on others, right? Implying that when others are prospering instead of us, when others are prospering instead of us, Mordecai's life has radically changed in the last couple of years. He has gone from walking outside the court of the harem in chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 to now here in verse 21 of our passage, sitting at the king's gate, right? His adopted daughter has become queen. He's gained some status. And sitting at the king's gate is where all of the politicians gathered, the bureaucrats. They weren't actually trying to impose rule. That was the king's job. But they were discussing what culture should look like. They were taking the decrees of the king, arguing about them, and trying to apply them to the culture. They were influencers, not like social influencers in the Instagram way, but more like state senators. They do a lot more than we would suspect them to do. And here he is at the king's gate, and this is where he hears of this assassination plot. Right? We saw last week that Mordecai struggles to maybe do what's right, what we think he should do, what the Jewish people would encourage him to do, what God wants him to do. But here he hears of this plot and he tells Esther, the queen, his adopted daughter, about the plot. Esther tells the king that Mordecai told him about the plot. The king seeks out the plot, finds it, and punishes those who were going to kill him. And this is how that story ends. Verse 23, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai has done something great. He saved, literally saved the life of the king. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles. We expect that now Mordecai is going to be encouraged, bolstered, lavished with good gifts from the king. Look at how chapter 3 starts. After these things, after Mordecai saved the king's life, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite. Who is Haman? Where did he come from? Where was Haman when this plot to kill the king was hatched? Where was Haman when it was time to save the life of the king? Mordecai was the one who deserves a promotion. Mordecai is the one who deserves to be celebrated for his good deeds, but he is not. He is not. He's left out. 
And on top of all of this, Haman uses his new power and flaunts it over all the people, right? He becomes second in command to the king of the Persian empire, and he makes everyone at the king's gate bow down. Now, Mordecai has already done something great in the eyes of any kingdom. Any kingdom on earth would agree that preserving the life of their king is a good thing. But here what we see is that Mordecai does something good in the eyes of God. Everyone is bowing down to Haman, but Mordecai refuses. And for some reason, Mordecai connects his refusal to bow down with being a Jew. He has told Esther many times, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. That's not a good thing. But here, when the king's guards ask him, why are you refusing to bow down? He says to them, I am a Jew. He's trying to follow God's laws. And so we expect, okay, God's finally going, great job, Mordecai. After years of assimilation and following Persian laws, now you're willing to stand up for me and do what is right. We expect God to come in and lavish gifts upon Mordecai. But what happens? Haman gets really mad. And he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill all of the Jews. This is not what we expect. This is not how we expect the heroes of the Bible to be treated. This is not how we expect to be treated. When we do good things, we expect to be recognized for them. We don't expect evildoers to be the ones who are promoted and celebrated, right? This is how almost all origin stories for superheroes get started, right? At some point in their history, they have this experience where they see injustice, gross injustice, People who are good, people who are obeying the law, law law-abiding citizens are being trampled upon, forgotten, oppressed. Meanwhile, the wicked are being celebrated and fattened up, and they're living the high life, right? Think about it. Bruce Wayne, his parents are robbed, and then they're shot. That's how Batman gets started, right? Spider-Man, his uncle, Peter Parker's uncle, is robbed and shot. That's how, that's how Spider-Man gets his start. Luke Skywalker's aunt and uncle are senselessly murdered while the empire is growing big and fat and happy. That's how Luke Skywalker gets his start. This is how our superheroes get their start. They see this gross injustice where the people who deserve to be celebrated and supported are being forgotten or oppressed. And the people who are evil and wicked and should be punished are actually living the high life. And many times... When we do good things, we follow the rules. We go out of our way to do something gracious or generous or even costly to us. We end up saying things like, why is my life still a mess even though I'm doing this? Or even, it seems like my life has gotten harder since I've chosen to do this good thing. Where are you, God? Where are you? You don't want to Come and applaud and give me good things while I'm doing good stuff. I think the words of Psalm 73 put that feeling into great, great order. Psalm 73, verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And hear the despair in the voice of the psalmist in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In doing what I'm supposed to do, I do what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing good. 
I protect people, you might say. I'm, I sacrifice for my parents. I sacrifice for my kids. I take care of others who can't take care of themselves. I put my life on hold in order to make sure that others are happy. But still, my life is a mess. Where are you, God? Where is your justice? When you cry out in that way, it's out of unmet expectation. It's out of disappointment. But as we see later in the passage, there's also a time when we cry out, where are you, God, with a different tone. See, sometimes others prosper instead of us. And then there are times when others do us harm. Haman has been promoted. He has made everyone to bow before him. And Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to do that. Haman is furious and he wants to kill Mordecai. But when he learns that Mordecai is a Jew, instead of being satisfied with killing Mordecai, he wants to wipe the entire race of Jewish people from the Persian Empire to kill all of them. And so he begins to hatch a plan. And this plan is basically to encircle and ensnare the Jews and kill them from all sides. Now, uh, that creates a certain emotion that I think we all understand. Um, when I was uh, in college, I spent two summers in Africa, lived in Kenya uh, four months at a time, and I lived in a guest house uh, on the property of a convent. This convent was encircled completely by a 15-foot-tall hedge, uh, crab apples. It was very thick, very dense, and the guest house was situated in the corner of the property. And in the back of the property, in the back of the guest house, about an acre full uh, behind where we were staying was the burn pit. You took your trash out to the burn pit, you dumped it, and once a week, one of the maintenance guys came and lit the fire, and that's how they dealt with trash. And so one night, uh, my team had been celebrating a birthday. We cooked a dinner, we had a cake, there were some leftovers, and we were worried that ants or bugs, one of the million different types of bugs that could come in, would come and infest the kitchen, so I was going to take the trash out. And it's about 7 o'clock, 7.30 at night, pitch black. There are no street lights. There are no lights out. The only light I have is from the windows of the guest house behind me. And I'm walking through the yard. I've done this plenty of times. I'm carrying the wastebasket with me. And off to my left, on the other side of the hedge, I hear a hyena. Now, hyenas laugh. They definitely do that. But they also howl. And the howling is like this high-pitch internal vibration that just brings terror right? I'm not going to try it. You can go look it up online later. Um, But it was off to my left, and I knew it was outside the hedge, so I wasn't super worried. I did slow down, and I started looking over here towards the left, and then it howled again, and it was up there in front of me, still on the other side of the hedge. I got a little worried, so I stopped. It howled a third time, and now it was to my right, and I realized that this thing was circling. Maybe not circling me. It was circling something, though, And so I did what every red-blooded human would do. I got ready to fight that hyena. No, I dropped the wastebasket and I ran back into the house. As soon as I realized that this thing was circling me, I recognized my vulnerability, how isolated I was in the backyard of this house. And so feeling that pain, feeling that isolation, that vulnerability, I ran. And that's what Haman is trying to inspire in the, the feeling he's trying to inspire in God's people. This is, this is how he hatches his plan. Chapter 3, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, 
They cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adder. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those that have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Amadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you and the people also to do with them as seems good to you. So Haman and the king craft these letters, sending them out to all the provinces in the specific languages of the provinces. We pick it up in verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adder, to plunder and to plunder their goods. Haman wants them destroyed. And so he begins very craftily by bringing the subject up to the king. Say, king, there are these people that are uh, scattered about in all your provinces. He doesn't ever use the name of the Jews. He's talking in generalities in order to make sure that he doesn't uh, tip the scales one way or the other. Yeah, these people that I'm talking about, king, they, uh, they have different laws, and they actually don't obey the king's laws. Is that true? Do we have any record that the Jews were disobeying the king in any other way besides the fact that one Jew, Mordecai, refused to kneel? He has exaggerated the situation. He's trying to ensure that the king will agree with him. And not only that, but he plays upon the king's need for money. If you remember, the book starts in the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign, and he has a party to build up his army so that he can go and fight the Greeks. This is now the twelfth year of his reign. He has gone to fight the Greeks, and he has lost. He lost at the Battle of Thermopylae, the very famous battle recorded in the movie 300, and uh, the, the Greeks move him out and all the way back home. He leaves behind tons of stuff, loses a lot of money, and Haman says, guess what? I'm willing to give you 10,000 talents of silver. Now, we don't deal in talents anymore, but that's about 1 million ounces of silver. And at today's exchange rate, that's $15.8 million that Haman is willing to pay to destroy the Jews. What is the king supposed to say? Uh, There are these dissidents scattered in and among your people, and I'm willing to pay you 15 million in order to kill them. Of course, the king is going to say yes. Evil is beginning to encircle God's people. Now, I don't think that any of us are going to experience this kind of evil where we are going to be potentially killed for being Christians. Not in our lifetime anyway. But don't, don't fool yourself. Evil still seeks to encircle you, to harm you, to convince you that following Jesus isn't worth it. But that living for the comforts of this world is a much more worthwhile cause. Right? Uh, when it seems like the deck is totally stacked against you, no matter what you do, you just can't win. People are always going to be mad at you. People are always going to be disappointed in you. When everyone else seems to be keeping pace with society and, and you can't even keep your head above water. Right? When your kids are sick 
and your spouse is sick, or your spouse is working 75 hours a week, and then they're traveling, and then your kids are sick again, when you just can't buy one nap that you need, when it seems like everyone around you is getting married, and you long to be married, but each time you ask for a date, you get rejected, when it seems like everything is going against you, evil comes knocking and says, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to continue to do good? A pastor friend of mine in Tennessee a couple years ago found out that a family was disappointed in a decision that he had made. Something insignificant, color of the carpet or song choice or like where the high school kids were going to go on their summer trip. And instead of coming and talking to him about it or even writing like a nasty email or just leaving the church, they started to spread rumors about him. They told other people that he was stealing money from the church, that he uh, didn't want to be in ministry anymore, and so he was tanking the church on purpose, that his wife hated the church, and so she was the one calling all the shots, and he was just doing whatever she said. And the way that he found out was some of these people started leaving, and when he would talk to them, they would tell him this ridiculous rumor. And he was so appalled by the fact that these people said this family said something. Those people said, this family said, this person said, this family. Like, he was surrounded by people who were believing this nonsense about him. Evil seeks to encircle you and seeks to convince you that following Jesus is not worthwhile. Makes your life hard, makes you feel bad. Again, you get left out of something. Again, people are talking about you behind your back. Evil seeks to encircle you. And that's a different kind of question when you ask, where are you, God? It's much more vulnerable. It's much more terrified. It's much more helpless. God, are you not coming at all? Are you not coming to help me? Have you abandoned me? Am I really alone to protect myself, to represent myself, to save myself? And that's why we act. That's why we often jump to conclusions and say, it's up to me. It's up to me to right this wrong. It's up to me to figure out how to fix this or prevent myself from ever being in this position again. But in this passage, God shows us that there is something we should be doing, something we should be looking for to see his presence in our lives. God says, look for the promises. Look for God's promises. Now, if you're with us last week or you know anything about Esther, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. We've said that. And so it might be hard for us to understand where God's promises are if he is not mentioned. But we can see his fingerprints everywhere. We can see him guiding history and directing the course of Haman's plan in order to push it off a little bit, to protect his people. God has promised from the time that he called Abraham. He said, I will be with my people, I will be for my people, I will protect my people. And what we see him doing here is subtly being with his people, slowly protecting his people. See, Esther was named queen in the seventh year of the king's reign, right? That is when she's named king. That's when the plot to kill King Ahasuerus is discovered. That's when Haman is promoted and Mordecai refuses to kneel. That's when Haman first hates Mordecai, is the seventh year. But God uses Haman's anger against him. Haman wasn't happy to just kill Mordecai. He had the power to make everybody bow. He had the power to kill Mordecai right away. But he was so angry, he had to kill all the Jews, which meant that his plan would take some time. Five years. 
It took five years for him to begin to enact his plan. God slowly pushed off Haman's plan. And even then, when it was time to enact this plan, God pushed it off a little bit further. In the first month of the 12th year, they cast Purim, which are dice, right? They roll the dice to try and figure out what their God, their deity, wants them to do when he wants them to kill the Jews, right? They're seeking supernatural advice, and God makes the dice come up 12. He has to wait 11 more months after waiting five years to kill the Jews. This is God slowly at work protecting his people, pushing off the viciousness of an evil man a little bit further, a little bit further. And we're going to see why as we continue to read the book. But God does something else. He works something in the hearts of the people that live in Susa. See, they send out these letters. They, can, they tell everyone that live in Persia, we are all going to kill the Jews. And this is how it, this section of the story ends. Verse 15 of chapter 3, the couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, people don't understand genocide? Really? We're just going to kill off an entire people group and plunder their goods? This is strange, right? This is Persia, a bloodthirsty, cruel, chaotic time in the history of the world. People who are devoted to making war and plundering other people. And don't forget, this empire had just lost a major battle. They had been defeated. And so more likely than not, the normal everyday person was feeling the pangs of failure in their pocketbook. And so when the king says, we're going to kill off this people group and we're going to plunder their goods, why do they not say, finally, I've really wanted to get my hands on the sheep of my next door neighbor? Because God is at work. God is doing something in the lives of these people to confuse them, to make them concerned about this genocide. But the most powerful promise that we see on display probably goes unnoticed to us, but it wouldn't have gone unnoticed to the first Jewish audience. As they read this book, when they read these uh, records, they read chapter 3, verse 1 differently. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but we do know that in Jewish literature, an epithet, the thing that comes after someone's name, tells us not just about their lineage, doesn't tell us just about who they are and where they come from, but it does also tell us what kind of action we should be looking for, what is important about them that moves the story along. And so the question is, who is an Agagite? What is an Agagite? Well, in order to understand, we're going to have to get in our history machine and go way, 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 way back, 1,200 years prior to this incident, when God saved his people from Egypt. God protects them, sends the plagues, leads them out with Moses at the front, cross the Red Sea, and as they're wandering the desert, heading to Mount Sinai, the Amalekites are the first people to come and to attack Israel. Vulnerable Israel, walking through the desert, right? And not only do they attack them while they're vulnerable in the desert, but they attack the most vulnerable people among them. They come up from the rear and they attack the sick and the elderly and the women and the children. This is Israel's first national attack. This is the, the, their oldest enemy. 
or the Amalekites. And you fast forward 700 years, and what you see is that once Israel has gone into the promised land, once Israel has gone through the period of the judges, when they have a king united under Saul, God tells Saul, after all these years of being uh, plundered by the Amalekites, Saul, go and kill all of the Amalekites and kill all of their livestock and wipe them from the planet. And Saul disobeys. Saul goes and he battles the Amalekites led by King Agag. And he takes Agag alive. And he takes the choicest livestock from the Amalekites in order to bolster Israel. Fast forward 500 years and here we have Haman, a descendant of King Agag, standing face to face with Mordecai, who is a Benjamite in the family line of King Saul. This is what the first Jewish audience would have recognized, this history that goes way, 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 way back. What does this have to do with promises, you might ask? Where are God's promises in this? It seems like this story just repeats over and over and over again. It does, but it would take this uh, audience all the way back to Exodus 17, when they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, when God has given uh, His laws to His people, and He's also made promises to them. This is what God says to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 17, verse 14, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it the name, uh, called the name of it, the Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. As soon as they heard that Haman was an Agagite, the Jews reading this would have known God is fighting for Mordecai. God is fighting against Amalek once again. Haman, the Amalekite. Haman, the Agagite. God is fighting with Mordecai for his people against their enemies. So what? We don't face Amalekites today. I don't know any Agagites today. What do those promises have to do with me? you might ask. Well, the truth is, God knows your old enemies too. He knows the things that haunt you, the evil that tries to ensnare you. Loneliness, desperation, self-righteousness. He knows the things that you fight with over and over again, the sins that cause you to struggle over and over again. And God's claim of war against Amalek is his claim of war against those things for you too. He promises to fight with the enemies of his people, to fight for them, to be with them, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes imperceptibly. I think what's really interesting in that Exodus passage is is the phrase that God uses, blot out the memory. And it reminds me of what King David prays for in Psalm 51. After he has sinned with Bathsheba, he, he prays and he says, blot out my transgressions that my sin might not be before your face. And this is the promise of God that we need to remember, a promise that goes back even further, back all the way to the garden. When sin first entered the world, God made a promise, and he said, even though Satan, the evil one, will strike the heel of my son, my son will crush his head. See, your greatest enemy, the greatest thing that seeks to ensnare you, seeks you to believe that following Jesus isn't worth it, is your own sin. It's my sin. It's the sin that comes within that tells us Jesus isn't worth it. Following God's not worth it. You're better off on your own. 
And God's promise to his people is that he will fight that sin until the day that he returns. And the the thing that we have to look forward to, the place we have to look to remember the promises of God, those promises to us to fight our sin is the cross. When others prosper or do us harm, look to the cross. Remember the promises of God made to us throughout history and brought to fulfillment on the cross where Jesus died, dealing sin a fatal blow. The promise that God will be fighting for you, fighting to renew you, to redeem you every day and in every situation. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we admit that that's good news. That sounds great, but when we go home today, when we go back to work or school tomorrow, um, life is hard. Um, It's hard to trust that you are present and working when it feels like um, we don't get recognized, when it feels like doing good is pointless, when it feels like others are, are working hard to harm us. God, we ask that you would help us remember the promises you've made to be with your people, to be for your people, to root out the sin in our hearts that drives us away from you and causes us more pain and chaos. Thank you that you do not abandon us even when we turn away from you. We thank you that you are working in the midst of our lives, and I pray that you would open our eyes to help us see that you are there and present and active. We thank you that you've made these promises to us. Help us believe them. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.